I just want to say that this evening after my talk, when you're doing Compline, it will be my matins, but that's okay. I'll play along. I'm sure the Lord who made a, a spherical earth will accept that sometimes we just have to fudge, fudge the, the hours of prayer a little bit. Anyway, um, I'm really glad that I'm able to do this and to still give my talk um, as I plan to in person in June 2020. And um, um, even though I'm sure we're all pretty um, in some ways tired of Zoom by now, it is really miraculous to be able to continue to have fellowship and discussion in this way. So my topic assigned was preaching the Sermon on the Mount. So I will begin quite literally by preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Seeing the crowds, Jesus ascended the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples approached him. And opening his mouth, he taught them, saying, Blessed the forlorn and forsaken, the hurting and heartsick, the humane and restrained, the famished and parched for righteousness. Theirs, the kingdom of heaven, the solace and succor, the birthright and reign, the banquet and feast. Blessed the clement and kindly, the wholesome and spotless, the steady and peaceful, the tarnished and smeared for righteousness. Theirs, the kindness and clemency, the perceiving and seeing, the adoption and kinship, the kingdom of heaven. Blessed you. Blessed when they besmirch you. Blessed when they browbeat you. Blessed when they accuse you due to your alliance with me. In that day, hooray! Rewards for the reviled abide in heaven, for so they pursued the prophets before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt turns stupid, how will it get resalted? The salutary thing is to fling it out. You are the light of the world. Secret cities don't sit on mountaintops. Lighted lamps don't lurk under measuring cups. So light your lamp, hang it high. Those you illumine will give glory to God in heaven. Don't imagine that I came to unravel the law and the prophets. I came not to unravel, but to knit back together. I promise you, until heaven and earth perish, neither the dot of an eye nor the stroke of a seraph will perish from the law until all the things that are going to happen, happen. So, whoever frays the edge of the least little commandment and urges folks to do the same will be sheared off the kingdom of heaven. But whoever stitches them up and urges folks to do the same will be woven into the kingdom of heaven. Unless you are of uncut cloth, seamless, smooth, and whole, you will not grace the banquet tables of heaven. You've heard how the first folks were told, don't kill. Whoever kills is gonna get it. But I promise you, anyone who snarls at her nearest and dearest is gonna get it. 
Anyone who growls at his next of kin, you bastard, is gonna get it in court. Anyone who sneers, you moron, is gonna get it in hell. So, if you're writing a check for charity, or chanting along in church, and remember how a relative has cause to be cross at you, stop everything. Get out of there. Work things out. Then your worship will be worthwhile. Make nice with the opposition and do it quick and root, or else they'll give you to the judge and the judge to the guard and the guard to the jail. I promise you, you won't escape till you pay back every last penny. You've heard how they were told, don't mess around with another man's wife. But what I say is, everyone who looks at a woman, you know how I mean, already adulterates her in his heart. So if your right eye wrongs her, gouge it out and get rid of it. Better one part perishes than the whole in hell. And if your right hand wrongs her, hack it off and hurl it away. Better one part perishes than the whole in hell. And they were told, whoever divorces his wife, do it nice and legal. But what I say is, everyone who divorces his wife, except on account of her messing around with another woman's husband, adulterates her, and whoever marries a divorced woman adulterates himself. And again, you're aware, they were told, beware, grant God what you swear in your prayer. But I declare, do not swear, not by heaven, it is God's chair, not by earth, his feet rest there. Do not swear by anywhere. No, not even by your hair. More than yes or no is to err beyond repair. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, fair is fair. But what I say is, don't defy your foe. Whoever gives you a right hook, offer him an uppercut. Whoever sues for your overcoat, hand him also your undershirt. Whoever makes you walk one mile, lead him on for two. They ask, you give. They borrow, you lend. The rules plainly state, friends are to love, enemies to hate. Your father above says, as I say to you, enemies are to love, and those who harm you your father above sends down the rain on all out of love, just and unjust the same, and his son up above. His sons act likewise. For what if you love only those in your eyes who are good? Far above basic pay will you get? It's your brothers you love. Does this goodwill set you a notch up above? Love only for these is a small kind of love. Love your enemies like your father above. So be perfect, like your father in heaven is perfect. See to it that your righteousness is not seen. 
recognized righteousness goes unrewarded. So when you give alms, don't give an almighty blast like the hypocrites do in the alleys and avenues to be praised by people. I guarantee you, they've gotten everything they're going to get. But as for you, when you're giving alms, it's sinister to see what your own self is doing. Keep it covered. And your father, hidden in heaven, will balance the books. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who have to assemble in the alleys and avenues so others observe them. I guarantee you, they've gotten everything they're going to get. But as for you, when you pray, go into your closet and close it. Keep it covered. And your father, hidden in heaven, will pay attention to your petition. And when you pray, don't blather like the barbarians who believe their logoria makes their listeners listen. Don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you even ask. Here's how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, holy be your name. Here come your kingdom. Heaven do on earth. Tomorrow's bread bestow today. When we release our debtors, release us from our debts. Spare us the trial, spare us the test, save us from evil and all of the rest. Forgive others and your father will forgive you. Refrain from forgiving others and your father will refrain from forgiving you. And when you fast, don't do like the frowny faces do so folks know they're fasting. I guarantee you, they've gotten everything they're gonna get. But when you fast, wash up, stand up, chin up, so no one knows. Keep it covered. And your father, hidden in heaven, will repay your pangs. Many treasure, treasure on earth where moths munch on it, decay devours it, robbers ransack it. If you treasure, treasure in heaven where moths are missing, decay is denied, robbers are refused, you will cherish what won't perish. The lamp of your life is your eye. So, if your eye is laser-focused, your whole being is bright. But if your eye is evil, your whole being is dark. So, if the light in you is darkness, how great the darkness. You can't obey two lords at the same time. You'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll support the one and undermine the other. You can't obey both God and gold. Which is why I say, don't pull yourself apart with what'll I eat or what'll I wear? Isn't your soul greater than its sustenance and your figure than its finery? Sparrows don't sow, robins don't reap, blackbirds don't build barns. 
Yet your father in heaven harbors the birds of heaven under his wings. You goose, aren't you worth more than a warbler? Does pulling yourself apart add height to your heels? And concerning clothing, why pull yourself apart? Learn from the lilies, which without spinning or sewing grow. What I'm saying is, even Solomon, in all his fancy finery, couldn't compare to a simple speedwell or a plain old pink. So if God decks out the dandelions and daffodils that are blooming today and mown down tomorrow, won't he do more for you? Such feeble faith. So don't pull yourself apart with what'll we eat or what'll we drink or what'll we wear? The heathen are always on the hunt for these things, as if your father in heaven didn't already know you need them. First, scope out your father's kingdom and survey his righteousness. Then all these things will be annexed to your acreage. So don't pull yourself apart over tomorrow. Tomorrow can pull itself apart just fine on its own. Today's troubles are more than enough. Don't damn so you won't be damned. For what you damn up will be denied you too. And the meter you meet out will be meted out to you. Do you see a twig in your brother's eye? Yes. Have you checked your own eye? No. Check it. Is there a beam in your eye? No. Check again. Is there a beam in your eye? Yes. Remove it. Is the beam still in your eye? Yes. Try again. Is the beam still in your eye? No. Is the twig still in your brother's eye? Yes. Remove it. Don't give the holy to the hounds, nor toss your pearls to the pigs lest they trample them and turn and tackle you. Ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and you'll be welcomed in. Everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. Everyone who knocks is welcomed in. However evil will any of you, if your child asks for bread, hand over a stone? However wicked will any of you, if your child asks for fish, hand over a snake. If you can be good to yours, how much more will your Father in heaven be good to you, if you ask, seek, knock? So all the things you wish people would do for you, you do first for them. This is the Law and the Prophets. Head for the straight gate, for broad is the boulevard, and wide is the way that leads to death. Hordes hasten to destruction. But straight is the gate, and wearisome the way that leads to life. Some seek, few find. Look out for pseudo-prophets. 
working through the countryside, sneaking up alongside sheep on the outside, wolves on the inside, greedy at your graveside. From their fruits, you will recognize them. For our grapes, vitis vinifera, gathered from an acanthus, acanthus syriacus, or figs, ficus carica, from a puncture vine, tribulus terrestris. Good tree, fair fruit. Rotten tree, evil fruit. Good tree, mm, evil fruit. Rotten tree, mm, fair fruit. Therefore, rotten tree, fire. Yes, from their fruits, you will recognize them. Not all who say, Lord, Lord, enter the kingdom. But you workers of the will of my father, come in. Many will say, Lord, Lord, open the kingdom. Did we not speak out all in your name? Did we not cast out all in your name? Did we not act out all in your name? Then I will say, never, ever enter the kingdom. You laborers of lawlessness, depart. So, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a sage who built a house on a rock. And the rain fell, and the rivers came, and the winds blew, and they struck that house. And the house did not fall, for it was built on a rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a fool who built a house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the rivers came, and the winds blew, and they struck that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of that house. And when it happened that Jesus finished all these words, the crowds were dumbfounded by his teaching. For he was teaching like the one who had authored all these things, and not like one of their experts. The Sermon on the Mount is something that's always just kind of been there, one of those handy points of reference so ubiquitous as to be invisible. As with so many other theological matters in my life, it was forced to the center of my attention by Dad. He wanted to wrap up our first year of podcasting in late 2019 with an episode on the topic, and in what I admit now was purely an act of filial piety, I agreed. I was not otherwise interested. I admit this fact now also to the organizers of this esteemed gathering, who I presume were more excited about the prospect of an entire conference on the topic than I was when I accepted the invitation. Well, as usual, Dad and the entire Christian tradition was right. The sermon is, of course, worthy of devout attention. But I was convicted of this not by reading the Sermon on the Mount itself, but by reading Luther's commentary thereon, which should, if nothing else, confirm everyone's worst suspicions about Protestants and their so-called sola scriptura. 
What happened is that, contrary to my expectations, the reformer did not dismiss the commandments in the sermon with theological sleight of hand on the grounds that we poor, miserable sinners couldn't possibly keep them, but that's okay because God loves us anyway and let us sin all the more that grace may abound. No. If anything, Luther rails endlessly against those who would let one single Christian off the hook of obeying every last jot and tittle that Jesus commands. Well, if Luther could still surprise this overconfident Lutheran, then it stood to reason that the Lord Christ could still also surprise this anemic Christian. What I did find in the process of recording the aforementioned podcast episode, however, was that the sermon was just too familiar to reach me. As I summarized its contents to my microphone, I barely held back from concluding, it's just one cliche after another, managing to edit myself on the spot to, it's just one aphorism after another instead. Apparently, in my brain, aphorism is the politically correct version of cliché. Poor Sermon on the Mount, victim of its own success. Now, some of this is down to the sermon of, as we have it. The Gospel of Mark is famously accused of being pearls on a string and pearls that have been thrown to the pigs at that. But I think the charge is better leveled at the Sermon on the Mount. It's clear enough, even to the greatest skeptic of historical critical method, that Jesus did not preach exactly these words in exactly this order. They were linked together somewhere along the way, perhaps by the mysterious Q, centuries before he found a better line of work designing high-tech toys for James Bond. Which means that interpreters are driven to the unpleasant choice between on the one hand, trying to discern exactly what string it is that all these pearls are strung on, such that the pearls get subordinated to the string, or on the other hand, taking the whole thing apart, pearl by pearl, to get a better look at each one, but jettisoning the real or imagined unity that makes them collectively into one magnificent necklace. From a scholarly angle, both approaches have their virtues, but from a preacher's perspective, neither is particularly satisfying. In any event, my task was to do the meta-analysis of talking about preaching on the preaching, sermonizing on the sermon, which explodes multidimensionally outward from the already significant exegetical problems to those of actually communicating some of this pearl necklace's luster to a specific congregation. So I went in two directions to accomplish this task, which I'll recount one at a time. The first was simply to figure out how to speak the sermon's own words with a fighting chance of them being heard by me, if no one else. Even if the average congregant is not as immersed in scripture as the average preacher, chances are good their ears will perk up at the familiar stuff so reassuringly familiar as to vanish again, while the unfamiliar stuff will float by unnoticed. How to hear the sermon and how to speak the sermon before preaching on it. Even if Jesus did not deliver the sermon in precisely the way it's come down to us, the evangelist Matthew still presents it as a sermon. 
the kind of thing that a preacher could deliver. It needed to be heard as a sermon before I could cast my own sermonic cloak over it. Well, my Koine Greek having survived the ravages of time better than my Hebrew, I decided to try translating it on my own. I found some nice Easter eggs along the way. The last word of blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted could be translated instead for they shall be paracleted. I was so delighted to find the Holy Spirit alighting on the Beatitudes in this cryptic fashion. Speaking of which, I also liked it that all the references to hiddenness in the admonitions on almsgiving, praying, and fasting derive from the same Greek root as cryptic. Encrypting our religious acts has a nice contemporary resonance about it. It's like God can track the users on the blockchain while they remain anonymous to everyone else. And I was more charmed than I probably should have been by the three strategic appearances of the word moron, a direct borrowing from Greek into English. Unsalty salt is actually made moron. The insult that will earn you Gehenna is you moron. And yet the foolish man who builds on sand is, according to Jesus' own words, a moron. But then again, Jesus knew he was headed for Gehenna anyway, so maybe he felt less nervous about leveling that particular accusation. Still, making the most of Greek loanwords in English is a limited game, and one for dilettantish scholars rather than preachers, so that strategy quickly ran aground. Oddly enough, I ended up getting my decisive inspiration for doing a complete poetic paraphrase from a translation of the Tao Te Ching by sci-fi and fantasy author Ursula K. Le Guin, who is one of my favorite authors to argue with. Literal translations of the Tao Te Ching abound, but unless you are already privy to the conceptual and symbolic world it represents, linguistic accuracy may obscure more than it reveals. The purpose of Le Guin's paraphrase was to render the Tao Te Ching available rather than precise. So, following the same approach, I took each pearl of the sermon one by one to see if I could give it a poetic polish, burnishing it into something faithful enough to the original to be more Jesus than me, yet startling enough to command the attention of the inured. What you heard at the outset of this lecture was the end result of that effort. You will no doubt have noticed exactly where I expanded or even inflated the text in an attempt to capture the range of meaning or accommodate alliteration and assonance, and how in other places I radically trimmed from aphoristic to downright pithy to expose the starkness of a claim. They ask, you give. They borrow, you lend. I hope the deviations from what you know so well did as intended, forced you to pay attention. For my part, grappling with the sermon to mold it into a different form did just that. Alongside my work on the paraphrase, I came at the sermon from a second angle in my public role as a preacher. 
This was back in late 2019 and early 2020, when it was still Matthew year on the lectionary calendar. Those of you who know me well also know how little it takes to set me off about the lectionary, so I apologize in advance, but this is going to be one of those occasions. Run for cover while you can. Preachers one shot at most, but not all, of the Sermon on the Mount in sequence falls during the Sundays after Epiphany in year A. This sequence doesn't begin until the fourth Sunday after Epiphany, however, which will be a real shame in the year 2285 when there only are four Sundays after Epiphany at all, Easter being on its earliest possible date that year, namely March 22nd. Under normal circumstances, Sundays after Epiphany range from five to seven in number, but the sermon lections stretch all the way out to the ninth Sunday after Epiphany. We won't enjoy a visitation from that rare bird again during a Matthew year until 2038, when Easter hits its latest possible date on April 25th. In a reasonably good year, like 2023, when Matthew's gospel next comes round, we'll get a full seven Sundays after Epiphany, and therefore we'll make it all the way through Matthew chapter five. But we won't get any of chapter six, except for an excerpt on Ash Wednesday, which omits the Lord's Prayer and the bits about fasting. Gosh, imagine talking about fasting on Ash Wednesday. And then a little more of chapter six, many months later during the Sundays after Pentecost. A portion of Matthew seven directly follows then, but you won't get it in sequence with the rest of the sermon until, as I mentioned, 2038. And even then you'll only get the latter half of this chapter. I suppose the rationale was that the same was that the parallel material in Luke would cover much the same ground. But the fact remains that Matthew 6 and 7 get considerably less time and attention than chapter 5. If you have any instinct whatsoever that the Sermon on the Mount is to be regarded and revered as a distinct unit within the whole gospel and should be preached accordingly, then you are going to have to gird up your loins and defy the lectionary. You will not by now be surprised to hear that I did precisely that in January and February of 2020. The first Sunday, I preached on about half of chapter five, covering the Beatitudes, Salt, and Light. The next Sunday, the rest of chapter five, and then one Sunday each for chapter six and chapter seven. And I should note that I read from the English Standard Version, not my own paraphrase, feeling that my congregation deserved the accurate rather than more available version of the sermon. And here now is where I have to trade out my tone of defiance and irritation for uncertainty and quite possibly defeat. On principle, I'd say the right thing for a Christian preacher to do is to read and preach on the whole Sermon on the Mount. In practice, I found that I had almost never in my life felt so unequal to a task. This is not false modesty. I'm not capable of that. And if it doesn't sound like terror, it's only because time and distance have lulled me back into my usual false sense of security around the scriptures. 
The core problem of preaching on the Sermon on the Mount turned out to be the simple act of reading it aloud to a congregation. This really was the most fascinating and troubling aspect of the whole experiment. One advantage of slicing the sermon up into little lections is that you can control it better that way. You can prevent it from going on too long unchecked before you get your interpretive two cents in. It takes some effort of imagination nowadays to feel how shocking the Beatitudes were. Jesus' homiletic self-introduction was an act of laying blessing upon the least likely persons. But it takes no imagination to feel shocked by announcing these lines to the friendly and unsuspecting faces in your pews. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You will never get out until you have paid the last penny. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. As I was reading that last one from the pulpit, I wondered if it was even legal to do so in Japan. Doesn't it count as incitement to violence, even if only against oneself? And do I really have to conclude that with the gospel of the Lord? And these are examples just from chapter five. It felt disrespectful to tell busy, overworked, exhausted Tokyoites to stop worrying, as I did when reading out chapter six. Easy for hippie Jesus to say. And then to finish off the whole sermon with, and great was the fall of that house, with images of Edgar Allan Poe's fall of the house of Usher dancing in my head. By the time I'd finished four weeks of preaching on the sermon, I felt as if I had been rocked to my core, as if sand was, in fact, preferable to the hardness of the rock I'd been trying to build upon. Uneasy feelings for a preacher to acknowledge. These two approaches to engaging with the sermon, a, paraphr a paraphrase as a private poetic and linguistic exercise on the one hand and public preaching on the other, converged in an unsettling conclusion I have no idea what the Sermon on the Mount actually is. The more time I spend with it, the less I understand it. Even if we could agree on its genre or collection of subgenres, that hardly reduces the burden on the interpreter. The sermon seems to add up to incalculably more than the sum of its parts. I am at this point still groping for adequate terminology, but the closest I can come to a single word descriptor of the sermon is reality. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' construction of the hard rock of reality. Build on it and thrive, defy it and die except that it is apparently not within one's power to make the choice between rock and sand, as between muffin and cupcake. Yet it is also not an option to refuse to make a choice. Action and choice are misleading terms here in any event. 
The reality of the sermon is exposure of the reality of God. And crashing headlong into the reality of God results in the exposure of the reality of us. A tidy Lutheran doctrinal approach would assign much of the sermon to the second use of the law, but that doesn't exhaust the matter either, not least of all because I am not sure that I would want to run into the arms of the Jesus who preaches the sermon in order to get relief from the accusations of his sermon. Is Jesus' crucifixion that which graciously procures my release from this relentless reality? Or is Jesus' crucifixion the best strategy we've come up with so far for crucifying the sermon? It gets worse. The sermon forces upon me not only uncomfortable self-knowledge, but also uncomfortable other knowledge. There are hounds that will gobble the holy. There are pigs that will trample the pearls and then come after me too. The presence of the beam in my eye does not actually invalidate the presence of the twig in my neighbors. And I need to be on my guard against ravening pseudo-prophets in woolly white clothing. There are hypocrites and hordes hastening to destruction. I don't get to relieve myself of the burden of reality by real or pretended altruism or self-sacrifice. Instead, I am thrown into the sea of sinners and expected to swim while loving them. Right. By now, I am tempted to quote the disciples on another occasion. Who then can be saved? But I'm not sure I share their goal. The sermon has left me alarmed by salvation and what it might entail. Possibly, Jesus' strategy is to show me all the ways in which I, in fact, prefer condemnation. And where can I possibly go from there? Gehenna? Let me turn now to the final act in this inadvertent drama of my existential and homiletic thrashing about. In all my wrangling with the sermon, I could not but come to my own conclusion about its center, which is undoubtedly wrong because such a conclusion is an attempt to manage the unmanageable. But if you will be so kind as to take this as a purely provisional handhold, I'll share it with you all the same. This, I sense, is the heart of the sermon. The lamp of your life is your eye. So if your eye is laser focused, your whole being is bright. But if your eye is evil, your whole being is dark. So if the light in you is darkness, how great the darkness. You may have noticed in the slides in my opening paraphrase that I did not add any punctuation to this line. And as you can hear in my duplication of the Greek syntax, it has no verb. It is an exclamation of horror trailing off in the direction of hell. How great the darkness. A little pre-scientific context helps here. The ancients knew there was a connection between light and vision, but they attributed the generation of light to the eye itself. Hence, the eye is the lamp of the body. That's what makes the metaphor so chilling. What if the light shed by your eye 
is actually darkness. Natural darkness is one thing, but spiritual darkness is something else. It's not the opposite of light, but it's negation. Not light's absence, but it's annihilation. What if the very act of looking increases the darkness all around you? Other admonitions in the sermon warn us against staring at our enemies, at evil. Apparently, you become what you look at. That's why you walk the extra mile, jinxing your enemy's evil with an overweening act of generosity. In that way, you can still see, if dimly, there's still light. But if your eye is bad and your light is dark, nothing is going to illumine you again. Natural darkness can be cured with lamplight. But how do you cure darkened light? At the end of the sermon, Matthew tells us the crowds were astonished at Jesus' teaching. So the English Standard Version. Dumbfounded or panicked probably captures the nuance better. And I'm not sure I should do other than leave you similarly panicked. I don't know how to give the sermon its due without trying to tamp it down again by a reasonable law, by a gentle grace, by the context of crucifixion, by an eschatology of resurrection. Perhaps for those of us too inured to the symbolism of the cross, the cross which was once the final aporia, the inexplicable gulf between imagined and real salvation, between imagined and real divinity, for us, perhaps, the sermon can, for a moment anyway, take the cross's place, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the Sermon on the Mount, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the Sermon on the Mount be emptied of its power. For the Sermon on the Mount is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Thank you.